Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue Dr. Newfeld's series on the Gospel of John, Reasons to Believe, with volume two of that series entitled, Why Follow Jesus? So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 6, verses 1 to 2, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Every once in a while, I like to take account of why I follow Jesus. You know, I was 18 when I gave my life to Christ, and I think it would be honest to say that my life was then in crisis, and I desperately needed a Savior. I had very narrowly escaped what could have been a fatal car accident, and I thought, had I died that afternoon, I would have gone to hell. I had fallen in with a bad crowd, and it occurred to me that I was not in control of my life and that God had, in mercy, spared me from eternal torment, at least for the moment. And so out of fear of hell and out of conviction that my life was out of control, I surrendered my life to Christ. Now, I must say, my motivation for coming to Christ is hardly commendable. It wasn't the action of someone who made a decision that was morally praiseworthy. I mean, what is virtuous about someone who doesn't want to go to hell? Well, nothing. When I surrendered to Christ, even my act of surrender was neither upright nor honorable. I can't look back at my conversion and say, you know, I chose a more superior way to live than someone else. No, the glory does not go to me for my conversion. That God would have had compassion on me is a reflection of his condescension and of his loving mercy and not my self-concerned decision. But as I think back on my conversion, I do know that I thought that heaven and hell were real things. And so I was concerned about myself far more than I was concerned for the glory of God or the loveliness of Jesus. That God was full of glory. I must say, at my conversion, that idea had never even occurred to me. Now, as the years have passed, a change has occurred. Over the years, the loveliness of Jesus has impressed itself deeply into my soul, and I see in him everything worthy of praise. I mean, after all, I now know there is nowhere else for me to go other than Jesus. He, he has the words of eternal life, and he's the only one worthy of a lifetime of devotion. But that's not why I came to Christ in the first place, but that is what I found in Christ after I came. I came to Christ in the first place for purely selfish reasons, period. And furthermore, you know, when I make a list of my blessings, I usually conclude that Christ has now made me into a rich man. Look, my sins are forgiven. I'm freed from condemnation. I find I'm loved by God and enjoy a personal relationship with the creator of the universe. I have the promises of eternity and I have hope. I know that right now I'm in training to rule and reign with Christ for eternity. I, I know that I have been adopted as a son of God and I am a joint heir with Christ. I have a Bible which contains the very words of God which I still read with passion and joy. Uh, but other stuff has become a part of my life, and it's directly connected to the fact that I have been saved. I have a wife who also loves Christ, and Kathy is both my lover and my fellow soldier in Christ. I'm learning to love her as Christ loves his church, and she's learning to submit to me as the church submits to Christ, and all of that is grace. I have more. I have children who love Christ as well as grandchildren. 
I'm blessed to hear my grandchildren pray. It brings me to tears. And after all these years, I still have a place in ministry. I have the joy of teaching the Word, and my life has meaning. I'm a rich man. I mean, in the way that riches truly count. I've come to the same conclusion as King David did in Psalm 16, verses 5 to 6. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Now, some of you have the same experience. I know that some of you know Christ and you're struggling right now, but that struggle doesn't mean that your hope and your future is not as rich and as deep as mine. Christ is our treasure chest of holy joy, and my, oh my, what a rich salvation. But this last part, the part of having a wife and kids and having health, is this why I follow Jesus? I mean, what if all of that was taken away like with Job? who lost his children to death. All his wealth was gone in a day. His wife turned against him. His friends called him a terrible sinner, and he lost his health and finally was dreadfully alone. And what then? Would I say that forgiveness and intimacy with God and the promises of eternity are still enough? See, that's the question. It's the question because you, my dear friend, will suffer, and you will encounter hard times, and you will face disillusionment of even friends and colleagues who may turn against you. Will you still follow Jesus then? Now look, I I want to be clear about one thing. No one who follows Jesus can claim their own virtuous reasons for following him. All of us who are in Christ are no more than beggars who have come to him for bread. I don't provide God with anything, and he provides me with everything. I don't do anything for God, but he did everything for me. That's why no Christian has the right to take the moral high ground. How does a beggar who has come to Christ for bread claim any moral high ground at all? You know, for the next two weeks, I want to take us in an in-depth study of the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. I've called this series Good and Bad Reasons for Following Jesus, and I don't want to give the idea that good reasons for following Jesus will give us an air of superiority over those who have bad reasons or those who quickly fall away in the day of trouble. See, when I talk about bad reasons for following Jesus, I'm talking about a foolish way of reckoning worth, not about someone who's less worthy than the person who follows Christ for the right reasons. You understand what I'm saying? If you think that there is any glory for you in following and in believing on Jesus, then think again. God gets all the glory. Worthy is the lamb, not worthy are his followers. Now, we're going to see that right at the end of John 6, when Peter says, where else shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. He didn't say, where else should we go? We have chosen a superior moral pathway. Look, Peter didn't have the words of eternal life, but he thought that Jesus did. And we're going to come back to that in this two-week study of John 6. But here's a word of warning. We're going to get personal, very personal. If you follow Jesus, I'm going to ask you, why do you follow Jesus? Your answer to that will determine whether or not you make it. And if you're curious about Jesus and you've never surrendered your life into his hands, why is that? I want you to confront yourself, but I also want you to confront what Jesus truly offers and ask you if you want it. 
See, those questions are the subject matter of John chapter 6. And over the next two weeks, yeah, you heard it, I want to take two weeks to wrestle with some of the most important questions we can consider from one chapter in our Bible, John chapter 6. Now, before I get into the details of this chapter, let's step back for just a moment and consider another important question. What is the book of John all about? As you may or may not know, the first four books in the New Testament are called the Gospels, and to make this quite simple, these four books are biographies of Jesus, and John is the last of the four. Remember, Jesus died probably in either A.D. 30 or 33, and Mark, the first of the four, was written around A.D. 62, and Matthew and Luke were probably written in the mid-60s, and John was probably written either in the 80s or the early 90s. But that little fact is important. John invites his readers who will have heard the stories of Jesus for most of their lives to consider the matter of believing. John doesn't want to allow a second generation of Christianity that merely relies on the faith of the previous generation. And so let's listen to John as he tells us why he wrote his book. In John 20, 30 to 31, he writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Imagine you have a limited amount of time to visit the Smithsonian Museum in in Washington, the largest museum on earth. I mean, one approach would be to get as much in as you possibly can. But that would be tough because it's not just one museum. There are, in fact, 19 of them covering everything from air and space to American art to a portrait gallery, to a national zoo. It's really stunning. Jesus is like that. It's a life so well lived that you could write untold volumes about every aspect of his life. John says, I've decided rather than to do a wide summary, to concentrate on a few aspects of the life of Jesus so that those who read, which in his day would have constituted a new generation of believers, might have an opportunity to examine what is meant by believing in Jesus. John chapter 6, of all things, is an amazing microcosm of the entire book. It starts with crowds pressing in to see Jesus and ends with many of them leaving because they're disillusioned. Why would you believe in Jesus? You know, as a Christian, you may have had questions about the Bible or spiritual life that are hard to answer. Perhaps you felt that certain questions are best kept to yourself, especially those that involve doubts. Well, here at Back to the Bible Canada, we believe in bringing these to light. Finding answers to difficult questions is critical for an unwavering and steadfast faith. That's why we're adding to a very popular video series from a number of years ago called Ask Dr. John. We gathered up our most complex and frequently asked questions for Dr. John to unpack in a two-part series on YouTube. So be sure to check us out on YouTube. Subscribe and hit the notification bell so you never miss the next episode. And if you're able, please consider a donation to help make resources like these available for free to all. You can give at backtothebible.ca. Let's read the first two verses of John chapter 6. 
It says, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, when we read the words, after this, we're well served to ask, you know, after what? About a year has passed since Jesus first cleansed the temple, which is found way back in John chapter 2. You know, many Bible students are surprised to learn that Jesus cleansed the temple on two separate occasions, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end. And so near the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was in Jerusalem and he had created quite a stir. After he is challenged by the Pharisees as to what sign he might produce to indicate that he had the authority to act in such an outrageous fashion as when he kicked out the merchants from the temple and created a chaos. Well, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, he meant that his body was the real temple. And if you think about it, that was much more outrageous than kicking out a few merchants from the temple. Now, after that event, Jesus went back north to the more sparsely populated region of Galilee. John tells us very little about what he did there, but then again, he doesn't have to because, as we know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already described that part of Jesus' ministry in some detail. So after this, which we read at the beginning of chapter 6, well, that seems to mean after some time in Jerusalem, Jesus is again in Galilee. And with that, we come to the drama of chapter 6, a drama that takes place in Galilee, which starts with the account of the feeding of the 5,000. Now, remember that to the most part, John is interested in telling us stories of Jesus that are not covered in the other three Gospels. But what's fascinating here is that in John chapter 6, outside of the account of the cross and the resurrection, this, this, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only incident in Jesus' life that appears in all four Gospel accounts. So that must mean that at this moment, when Jesus fed the crowd, this was considered by all early Christians to be a pivotal moment in the life of Jesus. So what actually happened? Well, from all four Gospel accounts, we read that Jesus had gone to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and that the Sea of Galilee was also called the Sea of Tiberias. I think John mentions that because as John writes his book, he's writing from the city of Ephesus. And by the time that John writes, the Romans have by then already destroyed Jerusalem and they've driven the Jews out of their historic homeland. That event happened somewhere around the year AD 70, and it's written about by the Jewish historian Josephus in his book, it's called The War of the Jews. But John knows that his readers are not familiar with the land of Israel. And so he has to tell them that the Sea of Galilee is also called the Sea of Tiberias because it's named after the Roman emperor Tiberius. Now, furthermore, he tells us that Jesus went to the other side of the lake. And well, that might not seem significant to us, but I think it is to John. See, the other side of the lake would have included areas known as the Decapolis. And they would have been the land of Israel's Gentile neighbors. Clearly, Jesus was going to a place where he was not well known. He wanted to get away. He wanted to rest, to pray, and to recharge. He'd been keeping a demanding schedule, and he was planning to be alone. And that's essential. Jesus is becoming so popular that it was becoming increasingly difficult for him to be alone. And then what is essential to this account is that the crowd followed him to the other side of the lake. Many of them took boats. Some, I imagine, would have walked, actually 
traveled into Gentile areas. That's how popular Jesus had become. People would go a long way just to be with him. Now, here's another facet of this account that's absolutely essential. The people of Galilee were very different from the people of Judea and Jerusalem. The Galileans were peasants. You know, some were fishermen, and a great many of them were either farmers or they were day laborers. That means that the majority of them were living on a subsistence wage. And for that reason, the questions that they asked were very different kinds of questions than the ones the Judeans would have asked. See, the Judeans asked questions about the meaning of Sabbath or the true intent of the law or what was the relationship between loyalty to the one true God and then to the Roman Empire. But the Galileans, well, they were interested in where their next meal would come from and whether their children were going to survive. That's what makes this scene so amazing. This crowd of Galileans actually followed Jesus to the other side of the lake into the Gentile territory without having enough to eat. That's how desperate they were for what Jesus had to offer. Now remember, we're talking about good and bad reasons for following Jesus, and I must say at the outset that it's not wrong to turn to Jesus because your life is in peril, or because you're suffering, or because your family's falling apart, or because you don't have enough to eat. Need has driven many people into the hands of Jesus. Look, I know of many people who have come to Jesus because they were looking to be healed, or because their finances were imploding, or because they had reached a moment of desperation. And I know of some preachers who have condemned people for coming to Jesus because of these, you know, extremities of life. Uh, but the clear account of the gospel is that Jesus did come to feed the poor and heal the sick and drive out demons from those who were demon-possessed. You see, Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, and it is no sin to be as the blind man was, as he, you know, cried out in his desperation, have mercy on me, son of David. Jesus hears that, and he responds with grace. He's moved with compassion for the needs of the human race. That's not the problem that John addresses in John chapter 6. But there is a problem in John chapter 6. See, the chapter begins with the feeding of the 5,000, which results in many of the crowd who want to make Jesus king by force. And then after that drama evening comes when Jesus walks out to his disciples who are now in a boat. He's walking on the water of the Sea of Galilee, and, and that's astounding. And then the next day, the crowd, realizing that Jesus is gone, is on a frenzy to find him again, and they do. He's gone back across the lake. He is in his hometown of Capernaum, and they're off to find him again. And it's right there that a difficulty ensues. Jesus says, you're looking for me because I filled your empty stomachs the day before. To which they have to answer, well, yeah, that's exactly why we're following you. You're the difference between subsistence living and living in abundance. And when that comes a long discussion, don't work for food that doesn't last. Don't just eat bread that takes care of your needs for one day, and then tomorrow you'll find you're in the same predicament that you were in before. Instead of eating temporal bread, I want you to feed on me. Eat me, says Jesus. I am the bread of eternal life. And that's the moment that the break occurs. See, at that moment, many of the crowd start grumbling, and a great many simply say, I mean, we've heard enough, and they no longer follow. And it is the drama of John chapter 6 that invites us to examine ourselves and what it means for us to believe. 
See, I began today's message by saying that, you know, when I came to Christ, I came because I was afraid of death. I was afraid of the final judgment. I was afraid of spending eternity in the lake of fire. These things were real to me and I needed relief. I said there was nothing commendable about my motivation, but on the other hand, there was nothing wrong with my motivation either. I was motivated by the desire to survive, and I believed that the difference between life and death was Jesus, and that's why I turned to him. And that was a good thing to do. You might identify with my story, and you might not. I know of one woman whose son was dying. She turned to Jesus, and he immediately healed her son. There's, there's nothing commendable about her motivation either. I mean, she loved her son, and why shouldn't she? She was his mother. And she believed that Jesus could heal him, and he did. See, I know of others who are desperate for meaning in life, and others who wanted Jesus to heal their marriage, and others, well, you get it. We all come to Jesus because we believe he can deliver us from our moment of desperation. I know of soldiers who have found Christ in the heat of battle and who have cried out to him for his salvation. Nothing wrong with all of that. But after we come to Jesus to satisfy our needs, he turns and demands we face another reality, one that many of us have never considered. Why are you spending your life trying to stave off temporal concerns and don't even consider the matter of what I really have come to offer? I offer to you the life of eternity, and that life comes only as you feed on me. Clearly, when it comes to our salvation, we, we have so much we need to talk about. Thanks so much, John. You know, I think an interesting point of this message is, you know, there's nothing commendable on our behalf in respect to responding to the gospel. It's all about God. It's all about what he's done for us, not what we've done for ourselves. Yeah, Ben, this is such an important point because... If we think that we have done something commendable, well, then all glory doesn't go to God. I mean, it becomes a, you know, a man-centered, man-glorious gospel. And, and some of us have fallen in that trap. But as a matter of fact, there's nothing morally commendable about anyone coming to Christ. It's, you know, we're the beggar that looks for bread. We're the sinner that looks for salvation. We're the hell-bound individual who says, I don't want to go there. So, you know, we found in Christ to be that one who is morally commendable. That's so important to say, and it's important to believe as well. Thanks so much, John, and thanks for the series today and the message. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. November is an exciting time at Back to the Bible Canada. This month, we offer you a booklet of meditations entitled Quiet Spaces for Christmas, a 30-day devotional focused on the themes of Christmas. It invites you to spend time daily reflecting on God's Word and hiding the truth in your hearts. We're also offering an alternative gift for the youngsters in your life. It's a wonderful story from the pen of Laugh-Again's own Phil Calloway called Jake and the Christmas Surprise. This funny, thoughtful story is perfect for that bedtime read with the kids or grandkids. It also provides questions for reflection at the end of each short chapter. Choose one of these great Christmas resources as our gift to you. 
And if you'd like both or additional copies, they can be purchased at backtothebible.ca. We hope these resources will bless you and your loved ones this coming Christmas season.